You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Two, in which my sister returns from school for reasons best omitted, and I'm forced to deliver to her a previously unmentioned piece of intelligence. I sit trying to write. I cannot. I have written no poetry in my six months of marriage. I've written drivel, doggerel, detritus, but nothing worthy of Calliope's mantle. I sit at my desk in my study in my house, which is called Pocklington Place, which is in a nice part of London with which you are almost certainly familiar, and so I shall not name it, for I do not like callers. My desk is mahogany and very large. It once belonged to an earl, but he was a wretched poet, and so he died, and now it is mine. That is called justice, and I would there were more of it in this world. My study is large, as it is also my library. My library used to be upstairs, but it became apparent that I should spend my life walking up and down the stairs between my library and my study unless drastic action were taken. So I called in an architect, who called in several workmen, who charged me a prodigious amount of money, and I bid them remove the floor of my library, though I might equally have said the ceiling of my study, for they were one and the same, the one being directly below the other. They did this with much banging and sawing and hammering, and they put in several very tall sliding ladders so that I could reach my books, and a very grand spiral staircase made of wrought iron which leads to a sort of balcony ringing the room on what used to be the floor of the library and the ceiling of the study and where there are a few armchairs. When the workmen left, I had the grand two-story study in which is the mahogany desk at which I now sit trying vainly to write. Forrest Leo was born in Alaska, educated in New York, and lives in Los Angeles. His new novel is The Gentleman. Thank you for joining me, Forrest. Thank you, Rick. Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, <laughs> all the Victorians, and a thorough streak of <laughs> Mr. Despicable <laughs> run through this novel. What was the first kind of book in this genre you ever read, maybe as a kid? Uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories. Okay, yeah, I remember those. I, I actually lived in Covina and rode my bicycle out to Los Angeles so I could get all of the whole Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, my mom read them to me when I was growing up. I grew up without electricity, and so we spent a lot of time reading around the wood stove, basically, in our cabin in Alaska. And she read all of the Sherlock Holmes stories to me, and I was just taken with them. I was seven or eight, and I could not get enough of them. It strikes me that you grew up in a landscape not too different from the Victorian <laughs> landscape you you describe, at least in terms of technology. What? Uh, how did you end up in a cabin without power in Alaska? Um, basically... 35 years ago, my dad, who had gone to Harvard and was living in Manhattan, um, decided he wanted something different. So he flew to Alaska and he caught the last bit of the Homestead Act, staked 18 acres and built a house. And uh, eventually my mom moved up there and I was born and that was that. Wow. What an interesting story. Now, as to your novel, uh, it's 
tells us the story of Lionel Savage. He is just not a nice man. (laughs) (laughs) And you have a lot of fun with that. Uh, Talk about creating just a a pretty despicable character that you want. (laughs) Did you like him when you created him? I did. Um, Yeah, so I, I came up with him in high school. I I wrote a lot. I never finished anything, but I, I came up with all these fragments and I had all these characters. And Savage especially and Lizzie's little sister really captured me. And so I, I sort of played around with them in different mediums in high school. I wrote lots of poetry about them until I realized I was a terrible poet. And then I wrote poetry as him because he's a terrible poet too, so it worked out. Um, and they just sort of stuck in my head for years and then when I finally wrote the play that this novel started as he was right there in my head and yeah I I love him he's a terrible person but I'd spent so much time with him by that point that I couldn't not love him a play? (laughs) yeah um, so I went to theater school Mm -hmm. um not because I wanted to act. I'm I'm actually a worse actor than I am a poet. But I loved theater growing up. My dad introduced me to Tom Stoppard, which changed my life at 14. And it had that effect on you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and Cyrano de Bergerac, between the two of them, and, and a little Noel Coward, I, I wanted to be a playwright. So I went to acting school because I felt like if I was going to write plays, I should know what my actors were going through Mm -hmm. um, and how they would attack a script and how they would approach the characters and all that. So after four years of acting school, I had a friend that was a director who had been ribbing me for a while about how I called myself a writer, but I'd never actually, you know, written anything. And she basically told me, yeah, yeah. So she basically told me that if I wrote a play, she would direct it. And so suddenly I was scrambling to come up with a play and I had these characters in my head. And they just seem to fit. That's a really interesting beginning for this book because it does not feel like adapted from a play. I'm glad. I'm really glad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You take as your um, beginning the kind of Victorian adventurer novel. Yeah. And there's a this is a, a time honored genre that one of the things I like about this kind of thing, it's come back. It seems it's time honored, but it's also timeless. We can always go back in time and write novels about imaginary discoveries. Yeah. Yeah, I think so for sure. I think there's always something beautiful about that sense of discovery, about like the world that still has blank spaces on the map and this sort of quest for the unknown. I think that's that's timeless. Well, the fun thing is, too, is that you need not fill in the blanks with what was actually discovered. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. Uh, and I think that was... Part of what was fun about growing up, growing up where I did, is that I'd never, you know, when I when I started thinking about these characters, I'd never been to cities like that. Like I didn't, I didn't know what the real London was like, so I could build this imaginary London in my head based on Victorian adventure stories. <laughs> uh, talk about um, creating. To me, one of the things that's interesting of this kind of literature is that we read it and it seems kind of historical, but I think it's really a very complicated exercise in world building. Just it's a world as fantastic to us as that of uh, Tolkien or George R. R. Martin. doesn't matter because you're building a world that we, has never been encountered before. How much of this did you base on historical research and how much of it was just drawn on as in thin air. 
Um, I think a lot of it was based more than on research from history books. It was born from the world that I sort of picked up through those old adventure stories. So Sherlock Holmes at one point mentions reading, uh, picking, pulling his Bradshaws off the shelf. And so Mm -hmm. I looked up what the Bradshaws was and it was a basically travel guide book in, in Europe and at the turn of the century. So I tracked down a Bradshaws and I looked through it and sort of found the hotels that someone would stay at or found the routes they would take through London. Um, so I think it was built more from fiction books than from history books. Wow, what an interesting <laughs> way to create a kind of a work. It's truly a work of historical fiction. <laughs> <In that sense. laughs> it is. I like that. It's not even based on history. It's based on fiction. Uh, you... Throughout this book, you create a dialogue because uh, Lionel Savage is telling the story, but it's the pages have been created and recorded by one Hubert Lancaster, <laughs> and he is constantly arguing and kvetching with Lionel. I love footnotes in a book. Thank you. I do, too. I think as a result of reading David Foster Wallace too young, um, <laughs> it... Uh, you know, he he was another one of those guys that just, like, shattered my world when I read him. And I tried, I feel, especially as a young American writer, you have to try not to be in the shadow of David, or not be in the shadow, you are guaranteed to be in the shadow of David Foster Wallace. But you try not to imitate him, mm-hmm. because you can't, or, or, or you can badly. But I think that to capture it is, is beyond me anyway. Um, but... Yeah, his his footnotes were wild, where suddenly I realized that you have the text, but then you can expand the text so much more through them. Uh, I think that for me, it's really um, at any moment, it can invert our understanding <laughs> of what's going on in in the story. And I think that that gives the story kind of a wild uh, unpredictability and a, a a plot tension too, because we're wondering all the time. Well, uh, when is this Hubert? Does he going to ever show up? And I think that that's a really fun way to create tension. Uh, and I think some of that came from the play too, or or if not necessarily the play version of this, at least plays in general. What I love about them is the symphony of voices. Each each character has such a distinct voice when you're writing a play, and bringing that into the novel, I loved where you have. Uh, because Savage has such a strong narrative voice that then bringing Hubert in with his equally strong editorial voice or, <laughs> or editorial, whatever you want to call it. Um, I love to be able to do that. Uh, this book has a kind of uh, a sense of satire in it. And I, I like that. And But when I try to grab ex- to what exactly you're satirizing, I kind of come up with a wh- I whiff. So <laughs> what is that? You know, I don't, uh, maybe writers in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't occur to me that the book was funny until. It's hilarious. Yeah. And lots of the prose. I mean, there were, I was just cracking up. My wife was going, <laughs> what is the matter with you? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm so glad that it is. It's funny when I was writing it, it just, I was so focused on 
savage in his his view of things and and these characters are so real to me because I've spent so much time with them that that it didn't really occur to me how ridiculous they are until other people started reading it and then I stepped back from it and 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 realized well too we I, this is not to say that we don't ourselves live in ridiculous times <laughs> and, and that any reasonable person stepping back from the the years of 2016 will look back and say what was they thinking <laughs> That said, uh, at one point, uh, Lionel saying, I find I must continually stop myself from contemplating her dalliance. I'm not a prudish man. Let it be understood. This age of morality is not one that I have an affinity for, nor is it one I deem good. And th- that phrase, this age of morality, the, that's a really interesting phrase. It's loaded. We always live in an age of morality. I think that's true. One of the big influences on this book there's an author named James Branch Cabell who. Oh yes. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Right. Yeah. He he was. Uh, I'm trying to remember. He was. He was in the the realm with uh, what's his face, uh, Eddings, E.R. Eddings. Uh yeah yeah uh, Edison. Um, E.R. Edison was over in England. Right. Um, Cabell was in America in the uh, late teens, twenties, and early thirties. Was sort of his heyday. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, he was the most famous and most respected author in America, or one of them. H.L. Mencken sang his praises. F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was a generation younger, looked up to him and sort of hero-worshipped him. Everyone agreed that Cabell was going to be immortal, that all the rest of them would be forgotten in a decade, but Cabell was going to be remembered for 100 years. He wasn't, of course. But the book that made him famous was called Jurgen, and it made him famous because it was banned for sexual content, so everyone ran out and bought a copy on the black market. And Jurgen was about a middle-aged pawnbroker and poet who one day met a monk who had tripped over a stone and was cursing the devil. And Jurgen stopped and reprimanded the monk for cursing the devil because he was a monk and Jurgen was a poet. And without the devil, they'd both be out of a job. And a little while later, he meets this gentleman dressed all in black who thanks Jurgen for the kind word. And Jurgen tells the gentleman that, alas, sir, I'm already married. And the gentleman, who it is pretty quickly apparent is the devil, tells Jurgen to go home. Everything will be all right. And Jurgen gets home and his wife is gone. And he's like, well, that's strange. And the next day, his wife is still gone. And after about a week, he's enjoying himself. But his in-laws... His in-laws are really starting to heckle him, and they convince him that it's the manly thing to do to go rescue his wife from the devil. So I read this. My grandfather loved Cavill and passed this affinity along to my dad. And my dad read Jurgen to me when I was probably 10, and I just loved it. And so when my director friend in college challenged me to write a play, I had these characters in my head, but I needed a story to plug them into, and I thought of Jurgen. Uh, I was basically just scanning my bookshelf for <laughs> an easy story to crib, and I came across Jurgen. And Cabell has his flaws. He is terrible to women, and he has a generally bleak and sort of hopeless worldview. But the story itself, the sort of Faust-inspired flight of fancy, I loved. And so I took it. You know... It struck me when you were talking about the ages that you encountered all this literature, 10, 14. Yeah. There's a, what is called uh, often the golden age of science fiction. People will say, oh, it's the 1950s. Oh, it's the 1960s. Oh, it's the 1980s. No, the golden age of science fiction is about 14. 
<laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think that once you encounter any of those kind of works of fiction and the, whatever fiction you do encounter in that age, it really imprints itself upon you in a really different, definite way. And I think that's clearly happened here. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it has for sure. And I think that is why, uh, you know, I, I am not English. I have spent probably all of six days in England in my life, but I grew up reading these very English stories and and that world I just loved and I, that affinity never went away. I think too, once you develop those kind of that world view, it doesn't go away either and that you can see America through the same kind of worldview that Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and all the other English uh, science fiction and fantasy authors imprinted it upon you. Absolutely. No, I think that's true for sure. And I, I love the sort of outsider perspective. I, th I feel like um, there's a book by Mark Halperin called Freddie and Frederica. Oh, I love that book. I do too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think <laughs> wow. one of the things that's so spectacular about it is that we're seeing America through the eyes of the sort of daffy British royals and seeing our country through their eyes gives me at least a whole new perspective on it. Oh, I agree. And I, I think, too, it's interesting that you um, take as your main character a poet, uh, a bad poet, because statistically, <laughs> uh, we have to think most poets probably are bad. Yeah. There's. Have you read the anthology? Uh, I think it's called The Stuffed Owl. It's an anthology of bad verse. No. no. <laughs> it is the funniest book I've ever read. It is It's has uh, published in the 50s, maybe 40s, and it is painstakingly edited to include the very worst laugh out loud horrendous verse in the English language. It's It's a skill to write poetry <laughs> that bad. It's a skill that you have, have strived to master because there's... <laughs> excerpts from poems in here that are pretty spectacularly terrible. <laughs> I've tried. The book originally ended with 30 pages of bad poetry <laughs> that my editor informed me was neither good enough to be good nor bad enough to actually be bad. So it turns out that I wasn't a good enough bad poet to convince me. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's in your, in your face. <laughs> Favor. And maybe your editor did you a favor. I think he did. I think, I think reducing reducing forty pages of bad poetry to you know one or two, one or two little excerpts that was that was an improvement. Uh, we have in here a, a great adventurer character. I really like this guy. So tell us about Lancaster. So I have two older brothers mm -hmm. who are eight and ten years older than me, and they are shockingly handsome and obscenely intelligent and very outdoorsy. Um, and I have had a pretty strong case of hero worship my whole life. I think I still have a pretty strong case of hero worship. Um, and I, it was, uh, for my whole life, I have been bookish and small. And they've been these sort of larger-than-life personalities for me. So so that, I think, was, was one of the origins of Lancaster was this... Uh, uh, the sense of knowing that you are smaller and weaker than someone that you look up to it was just fun. That I, I always had these sort of swashbuckling older brothers to look up to. And then also I love, I grew up in Alaska. My dad would, we ran a dog sled and my dad would take off wow. for 
a few weeks at a time and go into the mountains with the dogs or go across the Arctic Ocean. And so that that lust for adventure and exploration was in me from from early childhood. And so I also loved reading about the the great Victorian explorers, Richard Francis Burton and and Percy Fawcett and that that whole crew. Uh, I just Percy Fawcett is a really interesting guy. Oh yeah, yeah, and they're interesting. I think because you know, speaking of despicable people, I mean, so many of them are just dreadful in in the oh. imperialism and you know, essentially old white manism. So I like the idea that 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 there could be one of them who maybe wasn't that bad. <laughs> um, we also meet the gentleman. Uh, of the title. Tell us about, this is the most uh, wildly imaginative version of The Gentleman <laughs> I've ever read, <laughs> especially his place of abode. He has an interesting name for it. Tell us a little bit about creating this kind of uh, elements of the fantastic in this book. Another one of the books that really, really got me going when I was younger was A Hundred Years of Solitude. The magical realism thing I, I loved for the matter of factness that, you know, you can be wandering through the desert and suddenly run into a 15th century Spanish galleon and it's just there. So I liked the idea of having the devil just show up and everyone sort of take it in stride and have him be sort of ordinary. I I liked being able to sort of upend the assum- assumption that he is diabolical or seductive or anything other than a little lonely and a trifle bookish. <laughs> uh there are some, you know, interesting, uh, I guess, supernatural visions or, or just looking at the world with the idea that there could be supernatural things in it, which is something we aren't really used to in the modern world. And how do you go about um, creating that in your characters when that's something, obviously, I'm guessing that's something that is hard for us to see these days? I think part of that is how I grew up, where in I grew up so much of my life in the deep wilderness where everything feels sort of magical. You know, you step outside on a winter night and you look up and the aurora is just blazing in the sky above your head and it's reflecting off the snow and it's sending purple and green and red shadows everywhere and everything seems alive with possibilities. You know, the idea that they're fairies dancing in the shadows of the aurora just isn't that improbable. And so I wanted to bring that to a whole world where there is always something, something a little magical just around the bend, even if it's not quite in sight. That's an amazingly uh, powerful explanation. Uh, you, for all the that you take to lambaste the poets in this book, uh, you do pay quite a bit of attention to iambic pentameter. <laughs> kind of a rant there. Uh, I love it. I love Shakespeare. I loved Shakespeare from the time I was really young, and then I spent four years in acting school where I spent a lot of time learning Shakespeare and deconstructing Shakespeare. And I think I think poetry is the best thing in the entire world. And I think good poetry is even better than that. And I think iambic pentameter is beautiful. I, I, 
it's fun as an actor if you're doing a Shakespeare play, you have to memorize all of this and it gets in your head and you start thinking in in verse or you start you notice the rhythm to your thoughts. And I just I love that. And obviously it's not just Shakespeare, it's it's Marlowe or it's Tennyson or any good poetry is so strong that if you spend enough time with it, it overwhelms you and it, it works its way into every nook and cranny of your head. Well, I like what happens to our poor uh, protagonist. I guess he's a protagonist, <laughs> Lionel Savage, when he's trying to write. The insights into him attempting to write are really fun. I, they, I take it that this is something you have some experience with. Yeah, um, I love writing, and I, I feel so privileged to be able to do it. But it's it and it it. I feel like writing itself is so often a comical pastime where, you know, you're, you're, I try really hard not to be a precious writer, not to, uh, in my, in my process, not to have, you know, quirks or superstitions about it, but, but they creep in no matter what you do. Where, oh, you know, it's you're, impossible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You sit down to write something and something isn't right. You know, the, the, the light isn't quite right, so you have to shut the blinds, or your pen isn't quite right, so you have to get another one, or it's too early in the morning, or it's too late at night. Like, there's always something that creeps in, unless you're just really in the flow of it. But trying to get into that flow of it is impossible sometimes. And I love that, and I love the way writers talk about it. You know, they dance around it, or they don't dance around it, or whatever. When you're writing a, a novel like this that has these elements of the fantastic, it, you really have to kind of keep a set of rules so that, I mean, it's fine to have all sorts of weird and wild stuff happening, but you want that stuff to not be chaotic so that the reader can follow it and intuit things that are happening that the characters sometimes can't. Uh, did you create for yourself a kind of a rule book as to how the world was going to operate once you decided to create the world? Not so much. I, I, nothing, nothing set down, nothing official. Mm -hmm. I did my best to keep the sort of steampunky aspects relegated to one character. Will mm -hmm. Kensington, the inventor, is the only one of the main cast that sort of has that science fiction-y thing to him. And mm -hmm. I, I wanted to keep that so that it didn't overwhelm the rest of it, so that it didn't overtake the rest of the characters. Right. Um, and I, uh, that... Well, I think you did a good job at that. Thank you. I, I mean, I, li I like that, uh, that the book did not uh, devolve into um, endless steam engines everywhere. Yeah. And so for me, that was that was sort of my my quick and dirty way to do that was just to keep it keep it to one character who's not part of the central family and nonetheless he's a fun character and and i i love the 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 club where where he goes where he goes to uh when you in your six days in the uk did you get to go to any exclusive clubs i did not much did... to my sorrow <laughs> Such as <laughs> such as life. Uh, where did you go? I'm just curious. Um, theaters, the Globe, the museums, but mostly mostly the theaters, and just walked. I walked, uh, you know, along along the Thames, along the Embankment. I loved, loved, loved London. So I just I explored it by day as much as possible, and then spent spent every night in a play. There's a point in here where 
Lionel uh, is talking about madness, and he has a really great explanation of it, just a great in, you know, envisioning of it. And I think that that kind of, by putting your characters on the edge like that, it makes the elements of the fantastic, I think, more believable because we're all, you know, we're all somewhat crazy. Absolutely. Um, uh, I read uh, Foucault's History of Madness at one point just for fun, or I, I, I saw it and picked it up because, you know, it's a great title. How can you not look at the history of madness? And it seemed less like a piece of scholarship and more like a guidebook for writing fun characters. Like there's, <laughs> it's just, it's so rich. There's so much to mine from that. And there's so much history to mine from that, from the the idea of madness or these sort of medieval ideas of like, what is madness? How much is is uh, madness? How much is just diversion from the social norm? And so I love the idea of just sort of skewing everything a little bit, just having everyone a little bit mad. Yeah, well, I think too. Uh, <clears throat> there's a good deal of madness that uh, is encompassed by the word selfishness, well. <laughs> <laughs> and Lionel is quite capable of that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's true, and I think that that ties into the sort of subjectivity of the um, this unreliable narrator, where like everyone views the world in their own way that that is depending on the person completely bonkers. But who's to say that that's any different than things really are? Well, you know, that's interesting when you say unreliable narrator because I never thought of Lionel as unreliable. I, maybe I thought of him as uh, amoral, <laughs> kind of a, a scumulous guy. <laughs> but, uh, and one of the ways he manifests himself this way is, and this is really true too, something you, you do point out. Um, and I'm kind of surprised you broke the code on this is the uh, com- competition between writers. Writers are not necessarily thrilled to hear of one another's successes. Yeah. Which I think is true of artists of any sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's sort of fantastic. I love that that I read a book by someone who is better than me or who does something that I know I couldn't do. You know, I feel like sometimes there are some authors that I admire where I read it and I think, you know, I this is amazing and I could probably do this someday. Like. Mm-hmm. With practice, with effort, I could I could aspire to this. But there are others that it's just hopeless. Where I I know that <laughs> never in a million years. But I love both of that. Where I feel like it 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 makes you better to read something like that and to feel that jealousy, and to want to be them or kill them, <laughs> or kill yourself. <laughs> but having that strong of an emotion is sort of beautiful. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that that's true. And, and I think part and parcel with uh, Lionel's competitiveness is the fact that, in a sense, he he doesn't think of himself as having any friends. And this is a character. This is a trait that kind of spreads across uh, the characters too, because the gentleman himself says was very upset that you know the devil has no friends. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah, and I grew up in a the way I grew up. My parents are both very embracing of friends. Uh, 
both my parents sort of accrued honorary children. And I grew up with all of these pseudo siblings, which I loved having having that sense of community. And it's tragic to me not to have that. And so I sort of liked building this world of an extended family, you know, with the the Savages and the Lancasters and Will Kensington and Simmons, and they are all a family. And I thought it was hilarious that that our poor poet protagonist has is surrounded by this loving extended family and has no idea and <laughs> thinks of himself as having no friends. <laughs> uh, you mentioned a, a character we haven't discussed yet, and this is Simmons, the the footman. This is a, a classic kind of character type. You have so much fun with him, and so do readers. I love him. He just, it was so much fun to write him, and he was easy he just Mm -hmm. he he just cropped up fully formed and was always there one of the things we talked about this a little bit but i think um it it bears uh, delving into a bit is the character who is a big part of this book but doesn't get too much as much screen time is is hubert uh he's the chronicler, so to speak, and the keeper of the pages. And also, he you have a lot of fun where Lionel will make a point, and it'll seem like, you know, a pretty good point. But then at the end of that, you get there as a reader, you get there and you scan it and you see at the end of the sentence, there's an asterisk. And you know <laughs> that that that's going to take you someplace to the complete counterpoint <laughs> that that Lionel has made. Yeah, and I love uh, I. What I love about Hubert is that he is intensely boring, but I think also really genuinely good. I think he might be the one character in this entire book that is just at heart a good person, and I feel like there is tons of potential for fun with that. Where where I feel like Hubert is the real knight errant of this story. What an interesting thought! And now. Uh, we also have you mentioned uh, Kensington, who's uh, the 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 inventor. He he's not mad. He's he's a pretty smart guy, really. He is. He is the sort of the sort of boy wonder, mm-hmm. which was another thing thing from growing up. There was a we spent a lot of time, my brothers and I, just making things. You know? Oh, really? Yeah, because that was we grew up without without. TV and at times in our lives sort of isolated. And uh, so we spent a lot of time just building stuff to see what what it would do. We'd make Rube Goldberg machines that would end with a big explosion just because why not? You know, we had some fireworks lying around. <laughs> uh, I guess that's a little bit easier in the middle of the Alaskan exactly. wilderness. <laughs> no, it really is. One of the, the characters I, I like most is um, Lionel's sister, Lizzie. She is a pistol, and you have a lot of fun with uh, the uh, anti-feminism of the times and Lizzie, who's clearly not ahead. She's way ahead of her time. So uh, talk about like using her to kind of include an almost modern viewpoint, what a modern person might say, injected into this situation. She's kind of like, I think in many ways – for readers, the reader's closest uh, perceptual uh, pal. Absolutely. She, 
Lizzie is really the heart and soul of this. Like mm-hmm. when I when I th- thought of these people in high school, uh, Savage, I always I liked him. He was he was fun to play with, but the reason he existed was so that Lizzie could reprimand him. Basically, I and that female female perspective and modern perspective was really important to me. I my parents split when I was young, and I spent I lived primarily with my mom through most of elementary school. And so that uh, that strong female perspective was really important to me. And I was, mm, I think, more aware of the lack of that in so many of the adventure stories that I otherwise loved because my mom was reading them aloud to me. Hmm. And I'd realized that, like, there are no women in these or the women that there are have no agency. um, And so being able to upend that was an opportunity that I I didn't want to pass up. I really like that idea that your mother reading you the adventure stories brought to light the voice of a woman actually pronouncing those adventure stories, even though there were no women present in them of any agency whatsoever. Wow. That's, that's very unusual. Uh, this is a book that contains the seeds of its own sequel in it, and I'm wondering if you've done that. And also, too, has there been a graphic adaptation of this? There has not been a graphic adaptation of that, although that's interesting. I'd never considered that before. I, I sort of love that idea. It seems like it could work, especially, I mean, I love the illustrations. Did you ask for them or did the publisher volunteer them? I did them? not. The publisher volunteered them, which I was incredibly lucky to have happen. Um, and Mahendra Singh, the illustrator, is just brilliant. And the more I look at them over time, every time I I see one again, I see something new in it. He, he's done this spectacular job of throwing in the tiniest details in the corners of the frame. There's an inside joke in each picture. It's spectacular. Wow. Yeah, you know, I saw a few things in there. I went, went wow, what, what is that about? <laughs> I'll, I'll have to go back and look. This is a book, too, that uh, I, I love Lionel's voice. There's so many paragraphs here where he will go out on an extended rant or somebody else will go on an extended rant. They're kind of like read-aloud moments in this book, a number of them. And I'm wondering, thinking that maybe that has something to do with your days uh, spent with actors. Where Did you do any acting, even against your own will? I did. I did quite a bit of it, which was hugely informative and... I also, this play, when this was a play, it went through a series of readings and then workshop productions, and the actors who at various points played these people all brought brought something to these characters that has stayed there, you know, mm-hmm. where there would be a line that wasn't working, and I'd have someone come up to me and be like, dude, this line is terrible. What if what if I said this instead? And invariably they were right. And a lot of those uh, changes stayed in. And hearing hearing those voices aloud so much through through months of of readings and rehearsals, I think just hammered them into my head so that then when when I wrote the novel and had Savage narrating it, his his voice was so clear in my head that that it just flowed out. You know, uh, 
science fiction, though it pretends to be about the future, is generally uh, does what uh, Cory Doctorow says is predicting the present is what it does, I think, best. And I think that's also true of historical fiction. As, as much as something might be set in another time, you can't help but read it in the present. And, and reading this in the 21st century, I think that you have a lot of, you know, makes you think about a lot of stuff that's happening in our world. And I'm wondering, um, when you were crafting the the story, did you think about that or did you just let it flow and keep those things um, tamped down? No, I didn't. I didn't think about it. I didn't deliberately try to tamp them down. I I just lived in the story and where wherever the story went, I ran with it. Now, uh, is there is there we I asked, is there a sequel? So there I have written a sequel that my agent and editor are both quick to remind me will only be published if this book does well enough to warrant it. I myself have envisioned, I, I, I love these people. I have grand schemes of many, many books, each one narrated by a different member of the family. So oh, I, okay. I have written a sequel in which our heroes go to look for El Dorado, and it's narrated by Simmons, mm-hmm. um, by the butler, which is is so much fun for me. It's, it's back what I was saying about having these multiple voices that I love so much, and being able to have each book narrated by someone different. And, and in the next book, there are letters back and forth. So there are other voices that sort of sneak in, and there are a couple of different footnoters. Lizzie gets hold of the manuscript, and she marks it all up. Oh. <laughs> and uh, being able to do that and, and sort of play with genre a little bit, too, where, where I envision each one of these books that is narrated by a different person to be a little different in terms of genre. So the next one is sort of a straight adventure story in the uh, the Lost World style, mm-hmm. say. Um, and we have a sort of very dry, matter-of-fact Simmons narrating it. And then the book that I've outlined after that, Lizzie narrates, and it's... Uh, spy novel there's intrigue and a sort of Ruritanian romance thing going on wow <laughs> that, so that sounds like fun yeah i i would love to have them just go on forever <laughs> well i hope they will uh i i think that um one of the things that makes this novel uh so much fun is it's really succinct it doesn't get lost in itself it's goes straight for the the gullet um, did you have to find yourself having to cut out the entire El Dorado story, like extract it from this one? To a certain extent, I so when I first started to write this, it was after I'd done the play mm-hmm. and I wasn't done with these characters. So I actually sat down and I started immediately after the events of the play. And the first book I started to write was them going to El Dorado. Okay. And I wrote the first chapter of it and reread it and realized that here I had picked up the story of all these characters that had existed in a play, but that was all, and that I was trying to fill in the backstory basically in footnotes to clue in a novel audience. Mm. Um, and after a chapter, I realized that that was dumb. I had this story already outlined in play form, so I went back, and that was what made me adapt the play into a novel, was so that I could have that first book. Okay, now, 
So if your second book was written as Simmons, yeah, and you are you are did you always write it as Simmons? Yeah. Okay. I did. What made you choose uh, uh, Lionel to 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 narrate this one? I was going to say it's his story. I don't think that's true necessarily, but it's him who it's his poor decisions that drive the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that his his screwing everything up is inescapable, and so I it seemed like the natural starting point. I like that idea that you're a, of a story driven by your character's bad judgment. <laughs> <laughs> that that seems like a really great plot generator. Yeah, it's it's, and I think writing in the first person almost feels like cheating because because it's all his bad decisions, and so he strives to justify them as he makes them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he thinks they're all really great idea. It's a great idea. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and now uh, I'm wondering, too, uh, in the uh, the way that you tra- traverse the world, have you um, created this world episode by episode? Or do you, like, have, a, like, a bigger, now that you've done, like, written two novels and have a third outlined have you do you have like a bigger idea of what things look like i have a bigger idea of what the characters look like mm-hmm. um i i have this panorama of people where one of the things that i love i just love about life i guess and people in general is that the more you talk to someone the more you know someone there's always something new that you haven't picked up on initially so in the third book lady lancaster savage's dreadful mother-in-law is a giant player and we we learn way more about her and and her hidden depths and so for me it was more important i have i certainly have plot points a sort of overarching plot outline but it was more important for me to deal with the characters and their relationships to one another and to map that that was just an enormous amount of fun to sort of chart everyone's trajectory for the next 50 years who, you know, <laughs> I married people off and their children and, and, and playing with the sort of family tree of them has just been a hoot. I have, I have a family tree going to 2016 for these people. Wow. Well, that sounds like fun. I've been speaking with Forrest Leo. His new novel is The Gentleman. Thank you for joining me, Forrest. Thank you so much, Rick. This was a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.